Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, welcome to Basic Folk, authentic, honest conversations with under-the-radar folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Woo, there's been a lot going on recently. Um, you may have heard the news, that personal news, we'll just take a moment to, to uh, shout out to personal news, that I will be moving back to Boston in February, wrapping up my time at WYEP in Pittsburgh, um, I will become the new marketing and promotions manager at WERS at Emerson College, which is amazing. Um, it's my old college radio station. Spent so many years there. And in fact, that's the radio station where I truly fell in love with uh, this kind of music that we feature here on Basic Folk. So back to uh, back to the roots, you could say. Um, today on Basic Folk, we have somebody who I uh, was met when I was in college, and he's been kicking around the Boston scene for a while. His name is Mark Arelli, originally from Reading, Massachusetts. He is really interesting because he's um, has drama experience. He also has a really huge interest in science and, in fact, holds a, a science master's degree. And he plays sideman to people like Laurie McKenna, Paula Cole, Chris Delmhorst, Josh Ritter, uh, and so on and so forth. He is also in the super group bluegrass band Barnstar, which is based in Boston and led by Zach Hickman, who is Mark's best friend. I wanted some help in preparing for this interview. So I called up my dad, who is a retired high school biology teacher, to sort of ask him some questions about, you know, what are some things that I could possibly bring up with Mark in the interview. And here's what he had to say. Have you read that? Uh, of course not. <laughs> it's going to be the foundation of evolutionary biology. <laughs> and then there was an important case about whether they could teach evolution in public schools. The Scopes Files. This is in 1925? Still argue today, so some factions are trying to prevent us from teaching evolution. Um, I think in the interview, I eventually get to this topic with Mark, and I, inst- um, my dad was talking about Darwin on the Galapagos studying finches in our phone conversation, and I think in the interview I mentioned sparrows. You know, it's whatever. It's the same kind of little tiny bird. Anyways, this is a long intro. Um, and thank you for sticking with me. We're going to hear a clip of Mark Arelli right now. This is a really poignant song that Mark wrote back in 2015 about gun control. It's called By Degrees. 
And this new version that was just released features Roseanne Cash, Josh Ritter, Anais Mitchell, Lori McKenna, and Cheryl Crow. And the last verse is sung by Mark himself. And we're going to hear Mark's verse, and then we will get to our conversation with Mark Arelli on Basic Folk. I've seen sadness seep into my heart Each day a little more This darkness growing so familiar I can't recall what came before My children's faces filled with questions Looking up expectantly And I don't know what to tell them No, I can't bring myself to tell them you can learn to live with anything when it happens by degrees. Well, thank you for talking to me, old friends. Um, old? No. I'm well, joking. I mean, like a <laughs> long I'm time. To, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Like I was um, thinking today that. I think I like I, we haven't known each other since I was eighteen, but I went to Club Passim in high school, and I think you were the first show oh, I saw wild. as a teenager. You were probably I was eighteen. You were probably nineteen. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course, and yeah. that's how I'll leave it. Um, yeah. But I was uh, reading up on you, and I hadn't really found a lot of information about your growing up. Ah. Um, you grew up in Reading, Massachusetts. Yeah. North Shore. I guess yeah. I wasn't. I didn't really think of myself as being near the ocean, but we were definitely closer to the North Shore. Right. Yeah. yeah I'm from Walpole, Massachusetts, which is not South Shore, but yeah. it's like basically south of Boston, and you're north of Boston. Exactly. Different worlds. Yep. Um, <laughs> the so, Mason Dixon line. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what was your what was your family like growing up? I know your parents were teachers. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a, a younger sister, three years uh, younger, um, Lauren. Yeah, my te- parents were both teachers. My dad was a high school teacher. My mom was a, a nursery school teacher. Grew up in Reading and, and went to the public schools there and was definitely like good student slash tennis player slash musical theater person. Kind of went across the communities, as it were, you know, like theater and sports and science Yeah, and music. Uh, when you were, did you play tennis in high school? I did, yeah, so all through like college a, and high school. Yeah. Wow, okay, so you in college too? Did, it's like a career kind of. It was a, it was a thing for a while. Yeah, I played it like the, I guess you would say, I played it like the national level through college, and then. Did you stopped. win any awards? I'm sure that I did, but I, I actually kind of blocked a lot of that stuff out. Whoa. I didn't really like a lot of the people playing tennis. I mean, I found friends and, and good people, but it was kind of a lot of kind of rich, entitled mm. people, you know, if you played It's kids. not a salt-of-the-earth game. No, <laughs> no, it is not. But I, you know, I came from from a very, that, that was my background in tennis, like kind of a scrappier, kind of lower income uh, version of the game. Um, even though my, my tennis club that I was at was at Winton in Winchester. It was really shitty. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's probably the shittiest thing in Winchester, Massachusetts, which is otherwise a very nice town. Um, so yeah, I and, did that for a long time. And you were also in the drama club, musical theater. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Uh, I got kind of typecast as the, the Elvis, um, character early. So I played, um, the King and Joseph and then I did, um, Bye Bye Birdie and I was, 
the birdie Elvis kind of character. So yeah, I got I got a little bit of the Elvis in me early. I wanted to ask you about your um, evolution in singing because you are known for having an incredibly high voice. But <laughs> but how did and, and very like powerful and very uh, people like it. Yeah. I guess. Um, Gosh, I hope. How did musical theater help you with your singing style? Well, it certainly helps with projection and directing energy kind of off the stage at, at the audience. And that was probably something I kind of maybe reined in. It can be very hard to sustain, uh, and it was for a long time. It was really hard to go out and talk uh, at a club or something and then do a gig you know, later that night or even the next day. And then if I did a show or two in a row, I'd just be like kind of laid out uh, for a few days. Just So I felt like I wasn't really singing correctly. Mm. I did some voice lessons for a while, and then um, I started to really feel the benefits of that, but I also started to really hear it in my voice, like kind of unnaturally. You mean like it was becoming more like school? Yeah. Yeah, it just sounded a little bit kind of too... Um, to uh what's the word intentional right you know i don't really know how i did it but i eventually got to a point where i was able to sing with the technique that was a, a little more control over the technique but also not think about it so much and uh, i think that's just kind of what you do in any kind of artistic thing once yeah. you get to a certain level you can you master the technique enough so that it, it fades into the background. It becomes and, artistic again. Yeah, and so now now I feel like that's kind of the point where I've been able to be for like the last 10 years, which, you know, it's only the last 10 years that I felt like I had a, a real control over it and could do it the way that I wanted to do it consistently. Going back to growing up, mm -hmm. um, how did music play into your early life? You're like the perfect age for like the MTV oh, generation. Yeah. yeah, it was like right right there. I, I I feel like I was there to see the first video, but I remember watching video Kill the Radio Star and like seeing the like the guy planting the MTV flag on the moon and you know, just thinking like, wow, this is really something new and cool. It's and, like a shift in Oh yeah, music. total shift in consciousness and you know, just stayed parked in front of that TV and I was into it. I think by the time I hit middle school, I was starting to learn about the, the classic rock. But also simultaneously, it was like the hair metal thing was the, mm, the most popular stuff. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a, I'm not proud of that phase, but that was that was what there was. There's a lot of similarities between like the kind of blues crunch that you'd find in like Motley Crue. That's like very watered down version of like Led Zeppelin. You know, so you right. start getting into Led Zeppelin and then you start getting into the Stones. And once you kind of find the Almond Brothers and the Grateful Dead, it's like all of American music. It's all ready to be discovered and unearthed if you go digging. And, and that was just for whatever reason, that was the personality I had. So I would just every time I heard them cover a song, I'm like, who wrote that? You know, and I'd go find tapes from that person and because <laughs> we were this was tapes every time a thread kind of pulled out out from the fabric i just kind of yank on it and see what else it led me to and uh, eventually that led me to you know people locally like chris smither as opposed to the mtv people that were seemed very just far away they're like they're in your tv like they're famous you know like how would you ever 
meet those people or, or get close to them. Someone like Chris Smither was like playing in the Colonial Inn in Concord, you know, Massachusetts, and I could get there early and uh, sit literally with my feet on the stage. So, you know, I was literally at his feet, like just watching his hands and watching what he was doing, just trying to figure it all out. When listening to you talk about your like evolution of musical discovery, it sounds like you're an extremely curious person, which would help you out in a lot of different different ways in music and then also possibly in science. Sure. Is that yeah. true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have a master's degree mm-hmm. in evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. This is a big question, but what got you interested in science and what, what drew you towards that? Well, I had a, I had a woods uh, in like a conservation area in my backyard growing up. It was just, there was a rock wall at the, at the in the back of the of the yard and once you're over the rock wall you were free you know you're in the woods and it really was kind of that sort of thing where like yeah you could go out in the woods all day and you just your parents would just yell at the end of the day and you until it until you heard them <laughs> and so i you know i grew up just kind of mucking around in swamps and ponds and exploring and looking under rocks and logs to see you know what i could find so i was I loved that kind of science. And then in high school, I had a, a teacher, a guy by the name of Leo Kenny, who uh, taught at Reading High, and he was really into um, all the stuff that you would see under those rocks and logs, you know, salamanders and frogs and invertebrates. And, and um, he really exposed his classes to that kind of stuff within the framework of what he was obligated to teach us. And I just loved it. And he was also a huge Grateful Deadhead. <laughs> he, <laughs> that helps. He, yeah, he would play bootlegs, you know, like during exams. He would put like, you know, the Ithaca, you know, mythical Ithaca set on <laughs> in the background, like kind of, uh, you know, just quietly while we played exams to kind of set the mood. And I, and I just loved it. So I really, you know, connected with him. And, I you know, I'd go over his house. He would give me bootlegs to copy and he would give me other CDs by other artists that he thought I might like and so I found a lot of <clears throat> a lot of music through Leo um, and so he was kind of where the music and the science kind of came together wow. and I just I couldn't tease it apart for a while that I couldn't decide which I liked more so I just kind of did both it got to the point uh, after college uh, where I had continued to do music, but it had really become like a a love and a, and a and a real strong urge. And I just thought, like, if I don't try this, I'm gonna I'm never forgive myself. Try you music, know? yeah. I didn't know how to do it though, because <laughs> I didn't grow up around any any kind of artists in the in the suburbs. My advisor at college said you, you're gonna need some kind of day job and they pay you in science to go get your graduate degree. So you should get a, a graduate degree and take the money that you earn from a teaching or a research fellowship. And, you know, you live off that and you do your music, you know, on the side until you get your degree. And that way you have a degree. And uh, so that's what I did. I went to UMass Amherst, did music and science and got paid to do that and each one funded the other, and um, and by the time I got out of there, it was like I could see the path that like PhD, and then beyond that is like either like you know 
the tenured professor path or like the teaching biology and following in Leo Kenny's footsteps, which is definitely what would have happened if I didn't try music. You know, I would have just been the flannel shirted, bearded professor that like plays Neil Young and Chris Smither covers at the student open mics, you know, on, yeah. on whatever campus. But there was still that little voice in, in my head that's like, you know, if you don't try it, you're going to regret it. Did you ask a lot of people for advice at that time? Oh, or? yeah. Yeah. Everyone. I mean, I, bu- I booked, I was in charge of a concert series at Bates where I went to college. And so I would just, you know, I booked Smither, I booked John Gorka, I booked um, Greg Brown, Erica Wheeler. And it was just, I mean, a lot of folks. The Neilds. I, I br- brought a lot of people to Bates. And, um, you know, I would sometimes open for them. I would drum up, you know, interest on campus and fill the rooms for them. And then afterwards, I'd show them to their little on-campus apartment. And, and invariably, they'd be like, do you want to come up and hang? And I'm like, yeah, sure, you know. So I'd, little did they know I was just about to interrogate them and give them <laughs> the third degree about, how do I know? How do you do this? How do you know if you're supposed to do this? And I just remember Greg Brown. God bless him. He... He just because he has a background in forestry, and uh, so he kind of got a little bit where I was coming from, and he just said something to the effect of like, "You're gonna know, you're just gonna know, you're not gonna be able to not do it." And boy, was he right! You know, it was like it wasn't necessarily an epiphany. Every point where I had the chance to choose between music or science, I, I chose music. And after a while, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, we're doing this. <laughs> 20 years in, I guess I'm still doing this. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I heard you on a podcast. You're like, yeah, it was. I think it was last year. You're like, 19 years, and I'm still trying to do it. Still trying, you know? <laughs> I mean, trying to make it, make it rain, yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad is, or he is, he's a retired biology teacher so I was calling him today and I was like I'm going to interview this folk musician who has an evolutionary biology degree so can you tell me about evolution and so he he started talking to me about like Darwin and the sparrows and the Galapagos and everything and then he kept mentioning he mentioned a couple of times about certain religious groups not believing in evolution like no yeah evangelicals (laughs) and he brought up the um uh, the case in 1925. The Scopes trial? Yeah. Yeah. The substitute teacher got in trouble for yeah. teaching evolution in mm-hmm. Tennessee. But it just made me wonder what, and you can you can be like, pass, don't want to answer this question, <laughs> what your experience with religion was like growing up and what it's like now. Um, I was raised Catholic. I never, never liked it. It just, it seemed a little bit like... How could these folks possibly have the the monopoly on the right way to live your life? I mean, this it just seemed like fairly basic golden rule stuff. And uh, but I got confirmed. The confirmation process was what finally drove me from the church because I had a a conflict with a very big high school history competition thing where I had to go to D.C. and represent my school, and I couldn't go to the retreat. You know, we went in and met with the priest and said, you know, can he go do a retreat somewhere else? You know, no. Or can he do a longer, like, overnight retreat to kind of make up? And no, it has to be here. And honestly, it just soured the entire family 
Um, wow. Yeah, my parents never went back to church oh, wow, after kidding. that. Mm. I've my wife had a really positive experience in the Catholic Church growing up. She had a very progressive congregation, and that you know I know they do a lot of great stuff. But for me, I I ran from it, as my wife says. You know, for someone that like ran from the church, you should do, sure do write a lot about Jesus and <laughs> and have like you know kind of very kind of Christian imagery. I guess at some point, there's a reason that that they're hard to dislodge. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, the foundation is there. Yeah, so I don't I don't go to church uh, anymore. Um, we do belong to a Unitarian church, trying to give the my kids a little bit of extra fam- family morality. But I have a hard time going to the Unitarian church mainly because I work there. You know, with all the coffee houses, like it's oh, just. Yeah. There's times when I've done a church coffee house, and then the next morning, like. Eight hours later, I'm sitting in a Unitarian church, and a lot of the the the, the sermons or whatever you whatever they call them um, are they're literally my songs, it's like passing through. I've heard in sermon form. They didn't say it wasn't my song, like they, it wasn't based on my song. Wait, but they the, t- the, is it just the same theme? It's just or, the same okay. theme. Right, it's just like, like I was just singing about this. Oh, okay. In another Unitarian church eight oh. hours ago, and now I'm here listening to it back. They're wonderful people, and their politics and their morality line up a hundred percent with mine. And I do not want to go because I don't like to join things. I don't, I'm not like a group joiner person. You know, I don't want to identify as a Catholic or a Unitarian. You know, I'm just I'm I'm Mark. So, <laughs> I feel like we could talk about this particular oh, yeah. topic like yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I like definitely had more questions about that, but like I also have. This others. is just seltzer. We're gonna need something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> gonna get the hard stuff yeah. in here. It doesn't sound like one more question about this, and then we'll move sure. on. Like it doesn't sound like going to church connects you spiritually to something larger than yourself. But no. But what does nature? Because church is just other people. I mean, and people are great. I like people, but um, I'm also an introvert. So for a long time, I thought that meant that, like, you just didn't feel comfortable around people, which I couldn't figure out because I'm on stage in front of people all the time and I feel very, very comfortable. So I was like, what is, how is this possible? But someone, I read somewhere the definition of introversion is, is not that you don't like people it's just that you don't get energy from being around people it flows out of you extroverts they feed on that stuff and it and they get energy from those interactions introverts are fine with those interactions up to a point and then after that point they feel depleted and exhausted and they just need to be alone and that's me like everything made sense once i learned about that and uh in heard it phrased that way. So like, you know, half hour after the gig, I'm talking to people that came and I'm very grateful and I'm really excited to hear, you know, what they thought of the show and and meet them. And literally after the last person leaves the room, I'm like, done. I could be in bed in 10 minutes (laughs) asleep. I'm just done. But so, you know, people up to a point are great. And after that, it's just exhausting. Mm -hmm. Nature, 
on the other hand, I mean, I could, I could do that all day. That, that to me is really where something bigger than myself and bigger than humans is like, is plainly obvious. And it's just, it's, it's a miracle. I don't even know what other word to, to use. I mean, like, we're not even solid. We're just like little waves of electricity vibrating around super fast, you know, yeah. I mean, at, at our most basic atomic level. And that, how is that even possible? Whether it's the creepy crawlies or whether it's, you know, the more charismatic megafauna or whether it's like a landscape, that to me is just the stuff that really kind of unplugs me and makes me feel that kind of reasserts the my proper place in the universe, you know? Yeah. What's your um, favorite place to go in nature? Whether mm. it be like you've been there one time or you go there many times. Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways that I, that I like to, to do it because there's, there's something that really special that happens from walking and being in a, an environment that you've known your whole life and seeing how it, ch it changes or doesn't change and that's what I have now. I, you know, I live back in the greater Boston area, and so I'm walking through the the same woods that I grew up in. In some cases, the exact same forest with my kids, and you know, they think they think that I'm just like I know everything. Like they point to something, I'm like, oh yeah, that's woodbine, or you know, no, that's not poison ivy. It looks like woodbine, but it's not, you know, and. They just think I know everything, but those are the places that I've walked around in my whole life. And so that's a very deeply kind of spiritual thing. But out west is a whole other a whole other thing. I've always had a fascination with out west and took the family out to Utah a couple of years ago and my wife said, like, I've just never never seen you like this. You know, you're just like a kid. You're just wide open. You're just in awe. And I'm like, yeah, look at this. It makes no <laughs> sense where, you know, it doesn't look anything like anything I grew up with. It looks like outer space. Yeah. It just looks like, how could this be possible? And, uh, so I find, I find out in the American West to be a very kind of spiritual place, you know, just to, just to walk around in and just mm. to be. And, uh, so yeah, I find, I find that that sense of of uh, something bigger than me and something infinite through nature and you know humans are great but it's pretty hard it's pretty hard to find that mm. with other people i want to talk about your friendship with Lori mckenna oh great yeah um <laughs> how did it begin and how did it evolve into a musical partnership it's really funny because sometimes you have really great friends and you can't remember exactly the circumstances, but Lori and I remember the first time because we both lost a songwriting competition together. <laughs> I was still in college or I, had, or I had graduated maybe. I don't remember the month it was, but I remember the, the day because we were playing the finals in a, in the Borders uh, bookstore in downtown Crossing and Lori had like... <laughs> got a babysitter for her kids and come up. And I had come down from, from Lewiston, Maine, where I was in school. And we both, we all played and the judges judged and we both lost. And we were like, oh, you know, sorry, you know, better <laughs> luck next time. Or we're the losers, you know, like, <laughs> by the way, I'm Mark and I'm Lori. And, and then, 
she went back to her family and I drove back to Bates to open a show for the Neilds who were playing on campus that night in, and, uh, and it, but it wasn't until Bittertown that, uh, when she made that record and she made it with guys that weren't touring with her, um, that when it came time to do shows, they needed like some guy to do like Kevin Barry's guitar parts and Duke's guitar parts, or at least approximate them. And I had been because doing... those guys don't tour. Well, generally. they just they they were touring with Mary Chapin Carpenter okay, and gotcha. like you know kind of bigger artists. Um, and so I had done a little bit of sideman work with like Chris Delmhorst uh, and Katie Curtis. So I just started working with with Lori a little bit here and there. I just kind of stayed around, and then the songwriting thing really took off for her, and 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 kind of re reinformed her artistic stuff her own career and I was still in the band for all that so you know at this point I'm kind of the only one that's been there for like the entire ride and the entire thing and seen the whole arc from like you know kind of awkward mom from Stoughton with bangs and a sweater you know <laughs> yeah. uh, on stage to like you know superstar Let's talk about writing. Okay. Um, what inspired you to first start writing, and does that remain true for you now? I think it's it was just wanting to f follow in the footsteps of the the people that really moved me. It also just must feel so good to have that voice that you have, and then just to be able to like get your feelings out. In like that form. Sure. Yeah. That's that's um that still kind of surprises me. You know, I'll I'll still write a song, and think like, wow, where the hell did that come from? And then like <laughs> I'll actually pay attention and show up for my life at some point and be like, oh, that's where that came from. You know, it's uh, it really is a way of helping helping me process and be in the world and I. I don't know. I don't know what I would do without that outlet. I mean, I guess I would just cover the songs by the writers that inspire me and and kind of borrow their voice for a while, and it would feel, you know, it would inevitably make me feel a little better. But um, it is. I mean, I am really grateful that I I can do it. Yeah. In my own voice, for sure. And you mentioned uh, paying attention, which I think is like one of your greatest qualities oh, as, thanks. as a writer. Um, and I think it's something that, that other people catch on to. Um, I found this quote, he approaches each of these varied roles, your producer, songwriter, sideman roles, with a belief in the transformative power of paying attention. What worth do you see in a person who pays attention and how do you, how did you develop that skill of paying attention? Did some, did you have a, like one of your family members have, have that skill? Um, no, I think that was from science, honestly, because that's what the kind of, I mean, that's what science is. It's observation and questioning and seeking. And that, that's why every, every time someone says, oh, you were a scientist and now you're a musician. I'm like, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Exact same thing. I don't really see much of a difference other than I, I don't have tenure. 
in what I do. You know, I can, I can be fired. Um, but, well, I guess I can't be fired from my gig because I'm my boss. Right. Uh, but, if you fired yourself, that yeah, would be hard. Yeah. Lori could fire me. <laughs> Please don't, though. Um, but, yeah, I just, uh, I think that's a science thing, that, that kind of the, the faith in, in paying attention and what that, where that will lead you. Yeah. And how it's just, it's really exciting. I just love it. Have you heard of the book, The Artist's Way? Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Yes, that's I, like I read a that early book. on. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that Julia Cameron or something? Julia Cameron, yeah. yeah. I own it and haven't read it, as artists okay. tend to do. But my friend posted this quote the other day, and I wanted to know what you thought about it. It's from the book. It's, the quality of life is in proportion always to the capacity for delight. The capacity for delight is the gift of paying attention. Yeah. I mean, I would say yes. <laughs> I yes. mean, you know who's really good to read in that respect is is Annie Dillard. Like she Oh, I've heard. Yeah. yeah I've heard she that. she wrote a book called Pil- Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and a lot of her stuff is just amazing, but that book was like a a watershed moment for me where she's basically she's in this little Tinker Creek property and she's she's like a she makes a pilgrimage out there every day, basically, and she's you know searching for something and and looking at all the, at all the scales of resolution, the the changing of the light and the sky over the mountains and the, you know bugs in the in the creek under the under the water, and, you know so, it just seems so rich and interesting, um, and everything is the more you pay attention to it. I mean I. I'm sure there's people that listen to Bob Dylan and think like, oh, it's all the same. It's just some guy whining and he can't sing. And, and harmonica. Yeah. And some of that stuff, you know, I understand why they would say that. But if you pay attention, you can, there's different periods, there's different, you know, kind of modes of, 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 uh, of approaching his craft that he uses. And it's, it, it becomes all of a sudden this really amazing kind of thing. And it, I think it's the same thing with anything. Uh, I'm not a particular, I'm not like a fan of rap or classical music uh, or like fiddle music. Like uh, to me, all that stuff sounds the same. However, if I pay attention to it, it starts to sound different. You know, I did Mm -hmm. like a little classical listening experience one time where someone led me through, you know, seven or eight different pieces and and kind of did like a guided kind of listening experience thing and uh and i could all of a sudden i was like oh yeah claire de lune does not sound like beethoven it's Mm. very different but if you just kind of don't pay attention everything looks the same yeah and it's easy to dismiss well i'll read annie dillard and you listen to kendrick lamar all right so yeah perfect we'll meet back here in one year okay (laughs) (laughs) um i i wanted to ask you like i was really interested in talking to you about masculinity Is Mm, is that all right absolutely um how would you define masculinity and how do you relate to it wow that's a that is a tough one especially these days. Um, I didn't grow up with like a very Marlboro man kind of view of masculinity. Um, thank God. So, and I was also raised full on Catholic guilt, uh, and, and, um, fear. So like, 
you know, if you had one drink, you would be an alcoholic. If you had sex one time, someone was going to get pregnant and your whole life was going to be ruined. A very simplistic, kind of fearful, guilt-ridden philosophy that I kind of um, that I kind of resented for a long time. Um, now I'm, in a way, almost weirdly grateful for it because I look back and I'm like, I actually didn't, I wasn't like an, an asshole guy who believed he was entitled to everything and could treat people the way he wanted to because it, everything was his already. He just had to take it and you had to give it to him, whether it was, you know, critical accolades or, or you know, awards or, or you know, y yourself if you were a female, mm -hmm. you know, like I had girlfriends and all that stuff, but, but, um, I, I was always m far more timid because of the way that I was raised. And uh, so for a while I was like, man, you know, I guess I could have had a little bit more fun and enjoyed my youth a little <laughs> bit more. But at the same time, like I look back and I'm like, when faced with any kind of situation, I always kind of was like, well, I'm going to be a little more conservative about this year because I don't really know what's happening. I never like was the guy that was like, I'll tell you how it's done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of feels like, Basically, the entire problem with the world as we know it now is that there's a lot of guys saying, this is how you do it. Right. You know, and um, I've never I've never had that. At times, I wish I had a little bit of that swagger. And through some parts of the music, I, I feel like I've connected with that. Like once I met Zach Hickman, who has a lot of that and mm -hmm. is also a very respectful uh, man. Um, but through the bluegrass stuff that we did with Barnstar, um, I've kind of connected with a little bit of that, you know, kind of more primal kind of band of brothers thing. Um, so, you know, it's, I have a, I have a, a bit of a complicated, um, relationship with what I see as the general definition of masculinity. Mm. And, and I don't feel like I exemplify that really, you know, in the same way. And at the same time, I'm raising two boys. We have uh, two young boys. So I, I think about that a lot. Because for years, I just want... I, I like was like, when we have kids, like I want a girl. And I don't know why I thought that, because I don't know anything about girls still. But what that was, was a little bit of residual fear, I think, from like not knowing... like how, What if I don't know what to tell the boys? Because I didn't know growing up you know like yeah. what if what if i don't know guys are supposed to know in the you know especially if they have sons like but that sounds like that sounds like guys aren't supposed to be vulnerable yes exactly but, exactly but it's They're, actually they i mean humans are vulnerable sure yeah i don't i obviously don't ascribe to that but um you know but it's but i can but i can understand like the pressure of like wanting to be like a bro or like yeah. a super like a superman or a cowboy or something you know yeah like one of those the world of... expects you to be that and you're like actually not that yeah i know so it it is it is kind of a it's a process you know i mean i definitely think all the time about how to teach them to find their own definition of what it means like to be a boy or to you know to grow up and be a man um and I feel like I'm constantly challenging myself on that. I've 
until, you know, not counting my work with Josh Ritter and uh, with the, the Bluegrass Band, which is all guys, um, all my bosses have been females. <laughs> Katie Curtis, Chris Delmhorst, Paula Cole, Lori, you know. I see, I see, and recognize the like male-dominated music industry, but that that has not been my personal experience. Most of my life has been working in service to female artists and their art, and it's mm. it's been great. But I, I didn't even realize that until recently. Like when I would go on the road with male artists, and all of a sudden I'm like. You gonna stop to go to the bathroom at any time? <laughs> it's like, when are we gonna yeah, shower again? Yeah, you know, it's like I just came in, came up with like a whole different thing. You know, it's funny. Like touring with Jeffrey Focal, I think that was the first time where I was like, "Oh right, yeah, I'm on the road with a guy." Oh yeah, you know? I, had, I found a funny quote from you about like your collaboration with Jeff. You're like, we're guys, so we're not normally inclined to spend a lot of time talking. Or mapping out like the different parts that you sing together. Yes, I just thought that was like really interesting because Jeff definitely. I don't know him like super well, but he definitely seems like a, you know, brooding, dark. I think he. Man. That's part. That's a big part of him. I mean, he's also the warmest, friendliest, funniest, you know, guy I know. But that's. We have our, our thing, our size that we show. You know comfortable showing the world and that's not necessarily as artists who we are as people and I think it's maybe a little bit closer for me than some artists but even I like the guy in my songs like I really want to be that guy <laughs> I am not I am not uh what do you mean well, I mean, I fall short of that example of like um, his tolerance and his patience mm. and his um, acceptance and his compassion and his empathy. I mean, I I really I want it, and I keep writing it in in hopes that I'm capable of living up to it. But mm. you know, you you write as an artist, you kind of there's an ideal that you're kind of working with sometime an archetype and it sounds like a good practice though well yeah i mean it's like it's like the um you know going back to uh geometry or whatever it, it's the asymptotic line you know with the curve it's like you got your x and y axis right and you got that curve that kind of that kind of stretches between one quarter of the of the the axes there and and the line. My dad is gonna love this. Oh podcast. yeah, this is I'm geeking out hardcore, <laughs> but it, but there's there's a point here that 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 curve approaches the asymptote, but it never touches it. Oh. You extend it to infinity, and it always gets closer, but it never touches it. And that that to me is like that's my art in my life, like. I don't think I'll ever get there. I'll never touch the line, but I will never stop trying to mm. get closer to it. And I think that's the, I think anytime I see someone that feels like they have touched the line and they, they stop and I'm not surprised and I don't feel like they're searching or striving, it's invariably less interesting. You know, whether you're listening to their music or having, trying to have a conversation with them at a party, like, there are those 
kinds of things are those kinds of people are dead ends. You know, I yeah. don't ever want to be that, and we don't want that from our artists or our friends. You know, we always want to be like trying to get better. So, you know, I don't think any of the people that uh, I've worked with they're 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 different people than they are as artists. It's not it's not a contrived thing the way that it would be with like a um you know like a Madonna or a David Bowie or someone who's like consciously putting a a different very different image out there persona out there oftentimes our as folk singers our personas look suspiciously like us but you have to hold a little bit back for yourself just so that you have like a little bit of a personal life that's not, you know, for everybody else. Um, but that said, I feel like, I feel like I, there's not a ton. There's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. My uh, folk singer persona, for lack of a better word, as I, as I understand it, is just like the a nicer version of me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's my persona too. Right. Radio there persona. you go. Yeah. It's a nice version of me. Yeah. Well who wants to interact with the the asshole version of me? Right. You know, nobody. Nobody. <laughs> Man, well this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Really fascinating conversation. Yeah, we should do volume two sometime. All right. One year from today. Oh uh, we may have to live a little bit more. We may have to like do volume two in like ten years. Okay. Yes. Good point. <laughs> we'll live our lives because we're so young. All right. And yeah, in uh, 2028. 20, <laughs> okay. Let's talk. All right. Great. Okay. Thank you, Mark. It's a deal. Okay. That's it. The interview with Mark Arelli. Um, thank you to Mark for taking the time to sit down. Also want to say thanks to Janelle Gutierrez, my web designer. Thank you to Alexander Stanton of the Pittsburgh band Townspeople. And thanks to Laura McCarthy for production support. I'm going to keep on trying to post once a week for Basic Folk because I do have some pretty exciting interviews in the backlog. But, um, you know, things get crazy and I'm moving from one state to another. So we will see what we can do. Um, In the meantime, though, you can re-listen to all the past episodes because they've been pretty awesome. And I also will have some show notes posted at my website, cindyhouse.net. And hopefully we will see you next week on Basic Folk. Bye.